Section 16 of The Desirable Alien at Home in Germany by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Drizzling and Officers. Castle adequately represents Germany of the 18th century. To look out on that wide Platz with a royal residence on one side, a castle on the other, a glacis on the third, and a statue of a royal duke in the middle, is to think of banner screens and Berlin woolwork and tight stays and etiquette, and Carolina Bauer and the tragedy of drizzling. Very few people know anything about drizzling but they all know something about the beautiful actress Carolina Bauer, who persuaded her uncle, stiff old General Bauer of Castle, to let her go on the stage. And she was very like Princess Charlotte of England, the dead spouse of Prince Leopold of Saxe-Coburg. The prince, most morose, handsomest man of his age, was a confirmed drizzler. And pretty Carolina had played when a child with him. Her cousin, Christian Stockmar, managed the Prince of Coburg, and later, through the respect which the Prince Consort had for him, he exercised a very considerable influence over the court and policy of the late Queen Victoria of England. He was a managing man, and he managed his niece's affairs for her very badly, if we are to believe the statements made in that vivacious lady's memoirs. Trading upon the chance likeness of the young actress to the dead Charlotte of Wales, he engineered a love affair and persuaded Carolina Bauer to come to England in the hope of becoming the stony but broken-hearted Leopold's morganatic wife. Poor Carolina and her good mother, en tout bien, tout honneur, were planted out in a villa in the Regent's Park, and Prince Leopold went to tea with them and drizzled. And the drizzling was the worst part of it for Carolina to bear, and her chafing under it would have lost her her place if the prospect of the Greek throne had not done so more effectually. After a year's suspense in England, when the drizzler's visits were all the amusement she had, she was ignominiously packed back to Coburg as Countess Montgomery, and her memoirs say, quote, worse than hang of all the German-English royalties. Drizzling was invented in France by the fair bored ones of Versailles, and they called it Puffilage. They begged their male friends for gold and silver epaulets, hilt bands, galloons and tassels, so that a lover in those days, to make himself agreeable, would rob himself prematurely of the chief ornaments of his wardrobe and present them to the lady. She would put them all into a huge picking bag and take them to court, for she was proudest, whose bag ran over with the best gold. Bets between the sexes were settled not in hard cash, but in so many gold tassels for picking. Madame de Jolie took credit with herself for having put a stop to this traffic in galloons and lace. Since Adele and Theodore, she says, no lady has been seen in society demanding gold for picking from a man. 
the ladies of France went back to embroidery. Quote, the needlework which had once agreeably whiled away the time of our mothers and grandmothers, unquote. And parfilage crossed over to England, where it was called drizzling. Carolina Bauer's lover was royal, and therefore prone to the royal disorder of ennui. He combated it by drizzling, to the intense vexation of the sprightly Carolina, to see the prince alight from his carriage, followed by his groom bearing the, quote, awful drizzling box made of tortoiseshell, unquote, without yawning in his face, to sit beside him while he, quote, drizzled with monotonous regularity, unquote, made her inclined to run away without waiting for the prince to declare himself, and thus defeat all the best-laid schemes of cousin Christian. But she, quote, sat tight, unquote, and lost him after all. Then Berlin Woolwork came in and drove all before it, even drizzling. It killed all artistic needlework in England till the establishment of the firm of Morris and Company, but it probably was just as efficacious by way of a thought annihilator as any other form of occupation, and there is no doubt that it sorted with the inferior art instinct of that generation. Taught as a little girl by my astute nurse, to make an entire wardrobe for the doll I cherished, nude, as it came from the godmother, I did not realise at that time that I was laying up balm in Gilead, a panacea for my middle age, and as the keeping of a diary is advised by way of inculcating unconscious habits of composition, so my nurse's insistence on an irksome degree of proficiency gained me that mechanical skill which enables me to give but the very slightest attention to the coloured worsted that blocks out a leaf or the seam that unrolls itself steadily from the pin fixing it to the knee. If only half a mind is left, the other half is not much good to worry with. A certain adjustment of the proportions only is needed to render one process void and the other useful. Of course, the work must be a little better than the perfunctory night sewing of an actress on Seine. That is only fit, like Penelope's, to be unravelled again by day, though I am credibly informed that some of our leading ladies hem all their household linen during the run of a successful piece. As I am never or hardly ever to be seen without a piece of useful needlework in my hand, what I am going to say will inevitably suggest that I possess a character of the most restless, the most pernickety. I sew that I may not weep, or rather worry. Other people smoke or play patience to promote their powers of abstention from a process as undesirable as it is futile. But from all ages, I fancy, this principle has been conceded, that it is good to withdraw even so much as a fraction of one's attention from whatever represents the prevailing form of obsession, an obsession that requires concentration to intensify it. It gets it, all the boring, drilling force of intellect focused on an annoyance, unless some such panacea as has been the heritage of all the ages is resorted to.
The Egyptians possessed playing cards. They probably played patiences in their mansions on the broiling sand. Greek women spun. And we know the medieval ladies embroidered, quote, sitting lily-like a row, unquote. The Bayeux tapestry probably represents the nerve outlet of Matilda, the wife of the conqueror, and of all the wives of his ragamuffin host, left at home in Normandy to worry over the results of the great coup and bid for landed property. What of Mary, Queen of Scots, needlework, which is always turning up in exhibitions, and a large piece of which is still shown among the arid stonework of a temporary abode of hers, Edinburgh Castle. Women who sew are generally good-tempered, and I can point to instances of great intellects among my sex who have not scorned the innocent derivative of a confessedly feminine occupation. I can mention three women authors who were notoriously nimble with their fingers, and one of them, George Eliot, to my knowledge, gave some umbrage to a distinguished male visitor who called and found her as her custom was engaged on a piece of ugly, uninteresting white work. Was she stitching shirt bands for the late George Henry Lewis? That this other literary magnate felt and expressed such irritation to me years afterwards? Charlotte Bronte, too was a fine needlewoman, though I do not think she embroidered. She probably made lace collarettes, as my own mother did, when sewing in company. Georges Sand was another example of the woman of genius who realises the immense use of a mechanical, non-fatiguing occupation as a thought-killer. But then she smoked as well. The best instance is that of the greatest woman of all, Joan of Arc, in her trial, was once and once only stung into the expression of a personal and domestic point of pride. Oh, as far as sewing and spinning goes, I give way to no woman in Rouen, she said. And even the monkish chroniclers of the courthouse have not been able to take the innocent vanity out of the phrase. From Castle one goes to see Wilhelmshoer, and I wonder if I shall be sent to Glatz or Spandau if, like Lieutenant Bilse, I venture to put on paper what I think about Wilhelmshoer, because I think it is, without exception, the ugliest place I ever saw, the most elaborately tasteless, the crudest in bad prevailing colour. My impressions of it began to be planted at the bend of the line going to Castle where it slewed round, and let me see in the distance a pretentious mock ruin on the crest of the hill. It was not the ruin of a castle. It was the elaborate structure of the Hercules Cascade. Even from that distance I could discern the artificially chopped stones disposed in tiers, like the worst Strawberry Hill Gothic, and of very large proportions. And that is, I suppose, why the erection as a whole is called after Hercules. The palace, I was told, lay in the hollow below, between the cascade and the railway station. It has a station all to itself, where sovereigns, regnant and deposed both, 
must alight. Napoleon the Third, after Sedan, was forced to drag his weary, disease-ridden body there. Somewhere on the road between Sedan and here is the little posting-house where he lay all night and read in bed to try and procure sleep. Archibald Forbes told me what it was he was reading, a novel of Bulwer's, The Last of the Barons. And Forbes, in his capacity of war correspondent, was there when the Emperor gave up his sword to the old, severe, but by no means brutal, Moltke. It was a sad mess. The people who shouted, A Berlin! so frantically, were in the first place not ready, and in the second, cruelly done by their army fournisseurs. Joseph Leopold pointed out to me the hill that the Empress stood on that day, and sadly putting his field-glass back in its sheath, admitted that he had lost the field through bad guns, bad boots, and want of discipline. Sedon Field is as tame as Edge Hill, where a Stuart lost his chance, or Neville's Cross on the Red Hills near Durham, that once ran with blood. Sedon Field is more riant, perhaps, than either of these, I don't think I ever realised the bitterness of the Emperor's Cup till I saw the scene of his fall in this quiet plain, so far from palpitating Paris, where wife and child, his hostages, were sheltered only by the success of his eagles, and there among these tame sedges the eagles declined, and the Emperor folded up his glasses and knew full well what would be the next move. Wilhelmshauer and its hideous, tasteless magnificence, and old Wilhelm's sardonic deference. There are carp in the lake at Wilhelmshauer, but Napoleon de Petit had never lived at Versailles to be agreeably reminded of it at Wilhelmshauer. And there are gardens at Wilhelmshauer, a profusion of aniline dyed flowers set out in flat mathematical beds like table decorations and window-boxes fit to tear your eyes out. The sick man recked little of that. I imagine him lying there wondering, à quelle sauce il serait mangé. We saw the very bed on which he lay in the empire-decorated suite of rooms allotted by the old king to his distinguished guest. That was a matter of custodians and tips and felt slippers. Yes, before we were allowed to set foot in the state apartments, Joseph Leopold and I, in a miscellaneous collection of tourists, chiefly women, were asked to put on felt slippers, nominally to prevent us from slipping on the highly polished parquets, but I am sure it was to avert the possible damage that our dirty, clumsy boots might entail. I say slippers, but these objects flung at us out of a cupboard near the entry in a contemptuous manner by the custodian, were more like boats, more like arks, and I should have found it impossible to walk in them. I said so. And with a look at my clodhoppers, which beside those of the other two German women's, had the effect of what English shoemakers would have called smart shoes, that is to say, delicate and refined to a point, 
the custodian tacitly agreed that such fairy footsteps as mine could do no damage and invited me to proceed unshod in the felt boats after we had seen the napoleon suite and the suite which the kaiser inhabits with his family when he comes down to feast his eyes on his red and yellow flowers we got out of the palace again and went to look at the carp and to send off picture postcards from the great post office which the kaiser maintains in the grounds and then it began to rain and we decided to mount to the cascade at close quarters the hercules cascade resembles a huge sugar cake or one of the apens that in thackeray's day used to be placed in the centre of the table to prevent husbands and wives seeing each other this ghastly erection fills up the whole of the prospect and horribly interrupts the skyline it is the only thing one sees from the windows of the napoleon suite macabre and cheerless it cannot have induced any more pleasant thoughts than those that the son of hortense had any right to we went back to castle and the land of casernes and officers and upon my word castle seemed almost picturesque after the palace of the german caesars the sky was a cold steely blue we heard the clickety of arms as we approached the barracks looking over a wall from the top of the tram we saw the privates washing their linen it was late in the year and those heralds of autumn the reservists were coming back so they say in germany while summer is shown in by the appearance of my on people's tables and placarded on the signs of gastwirtschaften i like my bowler but i rather hate soldiers and above all prussian officers and there are many at kassel i was really afraid of german officers till i knew herr w he is a friend of joseph leopold's and on the morning of my arrival in my house in h i looked out of the window and saw a fat officer on a fat white horse bowing and prancing and paying his respects he was an engineer as well i don't really understand how a man can be both an officer and the head of a railway line but in germany it appears he can monopolize these two very onerous offices and herr w is heavy but polite in wiesbaden I had met officers in the Allee as free to me as to them, or so I had thought, and they had literally forced me to give them the power under pain of being knocked down. There is nothing in the world like the aggressiveness of a Prussian officer. And I had seen them when I had been staying in garrison towns, at hotels where they habitually dine or sup. But does anyone suppose that they condescend to sit down with the rest of us? no noisily and consciously they swagger through the common speisesaal into a special saal reserved for them a holy of holies to where the best dishes are carried in first footnote i do not know how our author penetrated into the psychologies of these gentlemen so as to know whether they were conscious or not but in most hotels of the civilized world the regular guests of those hotels whether they be cabinet ministers or bagmen 
are given regular tables or supposing the company to be sufficient to warrant it a separate room so it was with the officers whom our author has seen j l f m h and footnote and if by chance a poor little common soldier happens to be eating his humble meal along with us in the common dining room he has hastily to swallow the mouthful he has just taken into his mouth stand up and click his heels together remaining in that humiliating position until his brilliant superior has passed by i have seen a poor little peon rise at least a dozen times in the course of one meal to the unspoken hest of a brilliant being with floating cloak and with ringing spurs who comes bumptiously clashing in footnote this would be precisely the same in england if a private soldier in uniform happened to be eating in a restaurant when an officer in uniform entered english officers in uniform are not allowed to travel in public conveyances or in any class but first class on railways because if a private soldier happened to be in the same compartment the private soldier would have to remain on his feet during the journey the same reasonable regulation obtains in germany j l f m h and footnote i do not care for the horrid little jimp skimp ill-made grey ulsters that the einjeriger wear but i deeply admire the flamboyant cloak of grey with blue gerard collar and gold military braid worn by officers i admired them so much that i suggested to joseph leopold that he should have a cloak made like them borrow that of his friend lieutenant von l for whom i had once done some slight service in introducing him to a young lady he happened to admire at nauheim to where when you take me out to tea on camden hill joseph leopold inquired i explained that it would not be so much for camden hill as for travelling about in our native country and he replied that he would rather not be arrested all these rude handsome men were of course alike to me but by the fashion of their garments joseph leopold seemed to know to which corps they belonged in trier a frontier town officers are paramount i mean they infest every walk of life you go for a walk to some distant beer garden and there you see all these gay uniforms sitting with plain women at little tables on the rough grass looking much too smart in their gold galloon and blue cloth for their ill-dressed females and all along the wooded hills above trier you stop to take breath and there comes to you the rub-a-dub of the conscripts practising it is an ordinance that they may not do so any nearer town than a mile Footnote. these gentlemen are not conscripts and what i wrote the means is that when a regimental band is practising a new piece of music or new recruits are trying their hand at bugle calls they are requested to retire to some distance from the town this practice prevails in most civilised countries i remember getting great pleasure outside the city of tarascon hearing a regimental band of chasseurs practising in an abandoned graveyard an excerpt from die valkyrie 
JLFMH in footnote. In frontier towns, one always feels in the air the unrest, the indecisions of a population standing on debatable ground. During the war scare of 1910, 84,000 men were quartered in Trier. The men were perforce billeted in all the houses. The citizens did not mind that, for daughters went off marvellously during this pacific occupation. End of section 16